you get to really challenge yourself emotionally, intellectually to help a patient or to help the person referring the patient. And that's invaluable to me. And welcome back to Preoccupied. Today, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Michelle Stein, a psychologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. Yep. So, Maddie, now that we're coming back from the summer, what is it that um, you were doing over the summer that kind of led to this interview happening? Well, some pretty exciting stuff. Um, I was in Boston for the summer for like about two months working with Judge Baker's Children's Center. And it's a very, very cool place that we'll talk about a little bit more in future episodes, I think. And um, so while I was there, uh, Dr. Seifer actually referred me to one of his, a couple of his friends at Mass General Hospital, which is actually a very, very well-established hospital, nationally renowned for the fantastic care that they give to their patients. And um, so we were so, so lucky to be able to talk to Dr. Stein, who is an expert about the things we're going to talk to her about today. Yep, and then that's why you're not going to be hearing me on the interview because this is the first. Oh yeah, of, yeah. <laughs> totally forgot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I had to. Oh, you guys should have seen me. I was fumbling with all the all the cords and just breaking a sweat, trying to act natural. Okay, the HDMI into the freaking aux <laughs> into the. Um, yeah. Yep, so that's why you won't be hearing me on any of these uh, next three interviews, is because these were done while uh, Maddie was out in Boston. Yes. So. so Dr. Stein, much like our last episode interview, Dr. Porcerelli, and a couple episodes from now, Dr. Richardson, are all based in kind of a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic training. And that comes from Freud. And I'm sure if you know anything about psychology, you've heard a lot about Freud. But uh, one thing we just want to preface this with, and this comes out of a great article recommended by our friend and former interviewee, Dr. Seifert, mm -hmm. is that a lot has changed since Freud. As this guy, Dr. Drew Weston of Harvard Medical School writes, many aspects of Freudian theory are indeed out of date, and they should be. Freud died in 1939 and has been slow to undertake further revisions. Yeah. His critics, however, are equally behind the times, attacking Freudian views of the 1920s as if they continue to have some currency in their original form. Psychodynamic theory and therapy have evolved considerably since 1939, when Freud's bearded countenance was last cited in earnest. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we're hoping that for this object, for this episode, whoa, hoping <laughs> Freudian slip, what? We're hoping for, the, for this episode, um, You'll kind of let your guard down to what you might think psychoanalysis looks like and learn something new about what it looks like today, where it's much more inclusive and, yeah, much more, I don't know, informed by what we know. Yeah, a lot more integrative, a lot less... A lot of research-based things happening. Definitely, yeah, because that's what we're talking about, is a researcher who researches, essentially, psychoanalytic theory. Yeah. So a lot of Dr. Stein's research and clinical work 
integrates the social cognition and object relations scale global rating method, or scores hyphen G, as it's known for short. Yeah, and that's a lot of words in that acronym. And one that I didn't really understand until recently, honestly, was object relations. And it sounds like, might sound at first listen, like how you feel about your living room chair or yeah. that bowl over there. Mm-hmm. Like um, how you feel about, I don't know. Various objects, yeah. I don't know. The relation yeah. between the chair and the floor. I prefer pens over pencils. Yeah. <laughs> but mm-hmm. my hypothesis was incorrect, unfortunately. Um, something much cooler than that. Object relations are basically like how you relate to other people. So kind of throwing it back to when we talked about attachment theory a little bit with um, in our second episode, and we're gonna be talking about it more later on, is um, object relations is, as I said, how you relate to other people, but then a lot of it is based on those parental relationships from when you were younger. Yeah, because that's where a lot of psychodynamic thought focuses, is looking at the influence of your childhood development and your early memories on who you are now. Yeah, so the Scores G has a lot of questions about, like, what's your earliest memory of warmth, of uh, earliest memory, period, and, like, uh, what is what are your relationships like, uh, things like that. And it actually goes on to see uh, the social cognition part of how you think about other people, how you relate to other people, how well you're able to put yourself in their shoes and consider their complexity as complex as your own. Um, So it takes a lot of these very interesting factors, and when we talk about these factors, it kind of makes sense how this would be applicable in therapy, things like self-esteem, how you relate to other people. So when we say that a lot of psychodynamic treatment approaches focus on early childhood influences and how that might be influencing your psychological state now, you might wonder to yourself, how do they kind of get at that? So sure, the SCORES G assesses these early childhood memories and these kinds of things, but how, how exactly does that happen? Right, and another thing to consider is that those are, I'm pretty sure, mostly like self-reported. Yeah, like one way to do it is definitely asking, like how was your relationship with your parents? Yeah. That kind of thing. But there's another way to get a layer deeper than, yeah. Yeah, and we call those projective tests. So that includes things like the Rorschach inkblot. Yeah, I'm sure you've yeah, seen. that's a pretty big one. Yep, where the psychologist will ask, what do you see here? That kind of thing. Explain this image to me when it's really just a random inkblot. Or um, free association, where the therapist will say, okay, so I'm going to say a word, and then you tell me all the words you associate with this word. So brown, and then just go at it. Yeah. That kind of thing. But um, the one that Dr. Stein talks about, and that's mostly used with the scores G, is the thematic apperception test. So kind of how the thematic apperception test, or the TAT, works is that the therapist or the researcher will show a card with a picture on it, a picture involving one or more people, and then say, tell me a story about the people in these pictures. Yeah, what's happening here? Yeah. Um, and it is super interesting, even in like a less formal setting. If you look up like TAT, like thematic perception test images, like Zen and I for fun, you know, you're bored in the lab one day um, and we're going through all these pictures and like, I'm like, 
uh, oh, that dude definitely just like cheated on his wife and he feels awful about it. And Zenon's like, yeah, well, this guy came and found his wife dead. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, how did you, but to, huh. And it's interesting yeah. how um, our experiences um, so greatly influence our perception of things that don't have those contexts. Kind of makes you wonder how that translates to the rest of the world. And and that's why they call it a projective test is because, you know, going back to our talk and defense mechanisms, one of those is projection, where you take your own thoughts, feelings, experiences, fears, what have you, and project it onto something or someone else. Right. So maybe while that doesn't always mean that the exact story that you tell about the TAT card has happened to you personally, it can draw on certain feelings or fears that you may have in your life. Yes, absolutely. I've never cheated on my wife, you know? <laughs> How could I feel bad about it? <laughs> but um, that's definitely a fear that I, that I have. I'm sure a lot of other people have. The example we're going to be talking about today, and if you want to look it up, you can. It's TAT card one should yeah. show up. And there's and going to be a link to that in the show notes, too, yes. for anyone who's looking. And what you're going to see, well, who am I to tell you? <laughs> in fact, instead, we are just going to tell you how a couple of different people explained what this image saw. Yep. Just to give a brief description, there's a young boy sitting uh, kind of with his head in his hands over a violin. Yes. What could that mean? Here's what person number one said. <clears throat> okay. They're like verbatim. So here we go. Get on the, the acting. Okay. Yep. These are exact transcripts from the interview. Um, the young boy just came in from a music lesson, wondering why his violin isn't making the right sounds and wondering how to make it feel like how his professor makes it sound. I guess that's about it. <laughs> and that's, um, so that's how one person might see that. Yeah. Whereas person number two put, what's happening now? He's studying the instrument. He looks a little depressed about it. He probably just finished a lesson. He seems stumped by the in instrument. He just finished the lesson and he's stumped. He'll probably pick it back up and start practicing. And isn't that so interesting how one person sees it as maybe he'll take this as an opportunity for growth and the other person sees it as, oh, how do you ever be like one of like your mentors? Um, another one, and this one's really interesting too. It looks like he broke his violin. He's just sitting down looking at it. He was going to practice for school, but the violin broke. He's dumbfounded. He doesn't know what to do. He's feeling a sinking sensation, kind of feeling overloaded too, like something heavy is on top of him. He's going to have to get it fixed somewhere before he can practice again. He's going to have to be patient. Yeah, and then like a qualitative assessment of that in a therapeutic setting might be uh, for the therapist to then start poking at, okay, well, what what is it that you feel that is heavy on top of yeah. you here, uh, client? Know, you that's know? a very descriptive language. Yeah, <laughs> because that's kind of how the projective test works. And then what the scores G does is it's a qualitative rating method that helps you put this into quantitatively measurable terms mm -hmm. on like eight different dimensions, each one rated on a scale of one to seven. Yeah. This next one is very specific. Take it away. Yes, it is. Okay. The little boy got a violin from his grandfather, and he took it over and laid it down with his music. He had gotten the music from his grandfather, too. 
Very important detail. <laughs> yes. And he's sitting now, thinking how he wishes he could play it, and he can't wait till he can. After a few lessons, he learns how to play the violin. He's thinking how nice it will be once he learns to play. And he's kind of sad, because he can't play it yet, and he wants to so bad. And this is all the same ambiguous picture. Yeah, so one person sees it as an opportunity for growth, another person sees someone stunted. Yeah. Okay, this one is great. Yes, it is. Take it away. Okay, okay, for some reason this reminds me of Heidi. Uh, This child is the son of a violin maker, and he's trying to make a violin, but he may have damaged a part of the violin irrevocably. He's thinking about how he can put all the pieces back together. He feels pensive and worried. The only outcome, the only thing I can think of is that he leaves home. Yeah. And then in here, too, is kind of interesting. There's little notes that say, like, the questions that the therapist then asks the client. Yeah, prompts, right? Yeah. Like, so after, but he may have damaged part of the violin irrevocably. It notes that the person doing the research asked, now, what were his thoughts and feelings about that? Mm. And that's when that's when the person said he's thinking about how he can put all the pieces back together and that yeah. kind of thing. And then when the therapist prompts her for like, what's the outcome of this going to be? She says, the only thing I can think of is that he leaves home. So I was like, whoa. Yeah. Somebody has an interesting relationship with responsibility. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm also very curious about Heidi. <laughs> yeah. Wonder who that is. Or if it's like a, I don't know, pop culture, book, movie, something reference. I do wonder how, like, pop culture would influence how we see these images. Because for another one, they say, oh, this looks like a scene from a movie, you know, like a... And then, of course, we're going to put a link to this manual in the show notes, too. So you can read all of the thematic apperception test responses. (laughs) Get together with your date, you know. (laughs) Go through the thematic apperception test after you do all your personality quizzes. (laughs) Just get a group together and talk about the scores G and the thematic apperception yes. test. Get into the baggage. You know, I want to hear from a listener who makes a drinking game out of reading thematic apperception test responses. <laughs> That'd be fantastic. From a listener, of course, cause... of course. And then that is all we have by way of introduction. So without further ado, we give you the interview with Dr. Michelle Stein. here with Dr. Stein of Massachusetts General Hospital. So Dr. Stein, how did you get to where you are today? Well, that's a big question. Um, So I've always wanted to work in a hospital. Um, I like working as part of a team, not in isolation. And I always was interested in personality. So I grew up in New York, Long Island. So I did my undergraduate degree um, at Hofstra University on Long Island in psychology. And um, after that, I realized I very much enjoyed psychology. I wanted to go in the field, but before applying to master's programs or potentially doctoral programs, I I really wanted to make sure that I had experience and that I really knew that's what I want. I didn't want to just 
go from school to school to school and then realize, oh, this isn't what I want. Mm -hmm. So I, after I got my degree, I took a year off um, and I started working in a group home uh, full time for a year. And I very much enjoyed it with people with uh, dual diagnosis. So they had severe and persistent mental illness and they also had um, uh, recovering from substance use. Uh, after that, then I decided, okay, this is what I want to do. Um, I still wanted to work, so I decided to get my master's part-time while I worked full-time, and I did that at Adelphi University. So that took about two and a half years, and through there I met um, one of my first mentors, uh, Dr. Hilsenroth at Adelphi, and um, he studied, his research was on both personality assessment and psychotherapy process and outcome. And that's where, you know, I really um, developed an interest uh, for understanding personality on a deeper level. So after I got my master's, I worked in his lab for a year. Um, originally, I had no interest in research, but it, his was very much clinically focused, where it was, it was almost hard to distinguish, well, what's clinical work versus what's research, and that seemed to fit with me. I never thought I'd work in a lab or anything like that. Um, and I just fell, fell in love with it. And so that following year, I applied to doctoral programs, and I ended up going to Adelphi um, for my PhD in clinical psychology. Um, and again, my research, my research interest was in personality assessment, particularly... Um, performance-based tests, so ways to indirectly understand people's personality. Yeah, and that's kind of like, I uh, like your work with the TAT. Yes. And we'll get into that. Yes, 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 really yes, great. yes. Um, so what, like, what initially drew you to psychology, you know, when you're like 19 and 20, thinking, yeah. what am I going to do with my life? So I'm a twin. I'm an identical twin. Cool. And um, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. And uh, one of the things that was always fascinating to me is we grew up in the same environment. Genetically, we're the same, right? And um, interpersonally, we're very different. And that I think that's one of the things that drew me to psychology. It's like, well, how can this be? We literally experience the same things at the same time, yet outwardly, you know, we each have our strengths and vulnerabilities. Um, so that's something that was always interesting to me, particularly with regard to, to personality, because outwardly, I think on a deeper level, we probably have the same vulnerabilities, but how it manifests is very different. So that's really not only my passion for psychology, but really trying to understand, well, on a deeper level, what's going on and how do I assess this? Because, yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's see. So um, when you were going towards master's programs, mm -hmm. things like that, you graduated from undergrad. Uh, how did you know that you wanted to go towards... Um, like clinical psych, things like that, rather than academia, things like that. Yeah, so... Hospital setting was really appealing to you. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I always liked working with people. I studied and taught martial arts for years, and oh. yeah, so... Surprises yeah. around every... You know, every you know. <laughs> um, and I, I loved, um, while I'm not doing clinical work with martial arts students, but 
um, you are connecting with them, you are working with them, you are figuring out, you know, <clears throat> how do I modify how I, yeah, I teach to, exactly. And I loved that experience. So research I was less interested in at that point because I really didn't know all the different ways research can be. Um, but I was very much drawn to the person and working with the person. Yes. Um, as far as like, let's say, a, why I always wanted to work in a hospital setting is it's not in isolation and you're part of a team. And that I find very much appealing. Um, where, you know, ideally it's a supportive atmosphere, which I very much feel here, and everybody helps everyone grow. Um, in, if it was purely academia, there would be more of that pull to then do all the research involved. Um, so for me, it was always about the clinical work and, and how research. people in an applied direct. Yes, yes, yes. In the same way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cool. Um, so you talk about clinical, what kind of, well, first of all, do you, do you use the term patients or clients? Patients. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Hospital setting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what kind of patients do you see? Like, what are they, what are their problems? Mm -hmm. Do you deal with a particular demographic? Mm -hmm. So, uh, the way it works here is that your time is divided between, um, different places. So... 60% uh, of my time is on the psychiatric inpatient unit. So I work with um, patients that are psychiatrically hospitalized um, and I conduct individual therapy. I lead groups. Um, I also train all the psychology interns that rotate on that unit too. Um, so I've been doing that for a bit. And then, so that's 60% of my time. 25% of my time is I conduct um, outpatient psychological and neuropsychological evaluations. Um, and then 15% of my time is I'll see individual outpatients long-term. So there's some patients I've been seeing for 10 years, others for six months. Um, and as far as you know, why people come in, it, it really spans. On the inpatient unit, it's because um, they're in a period of acute distress where they're either a danger to themselves or others, and they're having a hard time functioning. So we're working on crisis stabilization. Um, as far as outpatient testing evals, these are individuals that for whatever reason, um, diagnostically are incredibly complex, uh, whether it's psychologically, whether it's medically, uh, whether it's regard to aspects of their underlying personality, and mental health providers refer them to us to try to get more of an understanding of what's going on, um, both psychologically and to understand how psychiatric symptoms might be impacting um, aspects of their cognition. So whether it's their attention, their memory, their learning, their executive functioning. And as far as outpatients, um, it's, you know, it's, it's people that can um, live successfully outside of the hospital, but are experiencing um, some distress, whether it's 
uh, their mood, whether it's um, relationships, whether it's figuring out who they are and what they want. Um, so it's a, a big range. <clears throat> so you get to work with a lot of different, you kind of get to see people at the most severe and also just kind of like, I need some uh, support, you know, just in general. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess we haven't talked to anybody yet who works with the more severe mm -hmm. cases. So how do you, um, how do you practice self-care and mm -hmm. like combating maybe do you ever find yourself experiencing like depersonalization mm -hmm. or things like that? So I don't experience depersonalization specifically, um, but I think one of the things that you bring up that's so important is, you know, given the symptom acuity, it's important to not treat alone. And that's what one of the very cool things about being on an inpatient unit, particularly the one that I'm on is, you know, there's a lot of staffing. We're very fortunate in that regard. and. People are very psychology friendly and, you know, we're constantly processing um, what's going on. Uh, let's say if it's a particular challenging patient um, or, you know, we'll talk about the, the cool thing. It's given it's a multidisciplinary team. You have psychiatrists, you have psychologists, you have social workers, you have occupational therapists, you have nurses, um, you, ha you have just a, a range of people and we're all going to be looking at let's say a patient from a slightly different lens so the very one of the rewarding things is being able to talk to people about that and you know not feeling the pressure that you're the only one that has to figure it out right if you make one wrong right move. <laughs> right so i think that's something that's very helpful um and that helps that you're containing a lot of emotion for that patient it helps when you have other people that you could go to and understand it and are there to listen. You're not bearing that entire load. Correct, correct. You can't. I mean, it just, what ends up happening is then people get burnt and then that impacts patient care. So I feel very fortunate to be in a setting where it really does promote, like, okay, let's talk about this as a unit, as a team, as a, you know, as the people caring for this person. Right. Um, so... What my, so you see, you have two very different, you have very short term, yes. you know, like, I think it's like, what, a day or two maybe? It, it could be, I could meet with one person one time. I might meet with someone four days a week um, for one week or two right. weeks, average like this day. Yeah, years. yeah. Right. So it's, it is a big range. How does the course of treatment for somebody you see for, you know, let's say, one or two weeks, mm -hmm. a couple of times. How does that vary from somebody that you're forming a really long-term rapport with? Mm -hmm. I think one of the big things you're bringing up is one of the biggest avenues for change that I feel therapeutically is, is one's ability or a therapist's ability to connect with a patient. If I can't connect with someone, it's going to be harder to, to do anything. And even the research shows if you don't have a, a positive or at least a yeah positive working relationship with someone or a therapeutic alliance, the treatment isn't going to be as effective. So in the short term, I'm emphasizing that even more. I'm thinking about how do I connect to this person? I'm, ever, I'm never not being me. I'm always me. I'm What you're seeing now is what you get. Yeah. But uh, 
when I'm when I'm with patients, especially in an inpatient setting, I'm thinking about okay, like how do I connect to this person? Like, are there parts of me I want to accentuate more or less, or um, th- things like that? Uh, because if I don't connect with them, I'm not going to be effective, and I don't have time. Yeah. Outpatient, I have time. I'm still focusing on it, but there's less pressure surrounding it outpatient when you know you're going to be working with someone for um, however long they want to work together. Yeah. So in those short-term settings, are you able to kind of like size somebody up in a first session be like, okay, this person maybe wants a more evidence-based, like more logical approach. Maybe this person wants to feel a little bit more of the compassion. Yeah, it it all, I mean, I I try to do the best that I can, and and sometimes it's more straightforward than others, and other times it's it's really hard. Like, other times I'm like, I am really having a hard time. It's funny, this this past week at work, for whatever reason, the, the particular patient's coming in, connecting with people was very hard, and I'm, and I'm like, oh my goodness, like, <clears throat> that might happen every once in a while, but what is going on? Um, so, you know, it, it, it all depends on the type of patient, the severity of the patient, their unique vulnerabilities and strengths. Um, yeah, so there's a range. Mm-hmm. Um, what kind of methods might you use in a session? Oh, um, what kind of methods? So um, when I'm first getting to know one, I use a lot of supportive Technique. So I was dynamically trained at Adelphi. So I tend to think psychodynamically, like how does, you know, their development contributing to what's going on now? That's an oversimplification, but we'll just say that. <laughs> um, but in the beginning, especially when I'm starting to work with someone, a lot of it is, is you know, being curious, uh, being genuine, being empathic, being validating, um, trying to understand, let's say, connections between, you know, emotions and relationships. Um, but I'm trying to be a stable, consistent, curious, warm presence in the room. Um, so that's usually what I start with. And then whatever I integrate in really depends on the patient. I sort of think of it like a salad, like... Like what's, you know, I, and I often say this in interviews with, uh, with interns, um, you know, everybody needs to have a therapeutic identity or a base and, you know, that's your lettuce. But what fixings you put in, whether it's cucumbers, whether it's tomatoes, whether it's carrots, avocados. All those metaphors. Yeah, yeah. That really all depends on who's sitting in front of you. It's important to have an identity as far as how you understand and conceptualize but how those interventions are delivered really depends on who's sitting in front of you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess with you mentioning, um, you know, training interns, working with the team, mm-hmm. like what part of your day is the most fun? Or I love challenging. I love I love what I do. I mean, I I feel I've always wanted to do inpatient and testing, and I feel fortunate with how things got set up. I mean, I came here as a postdoc to um, to specialize in assessment, and just things worked out where I get to do the two things that I love. Yeah. 
So, you know, I love I love my outpatient work. I love that it's not a huge part of my job because if it was too big, then again, it would be too isolating. But I love working on the inpatient unit because both, you know, you get to work very intensely with patients. You get to work intensely with the team. Um, you're constantly learning. You're never not learning. I mean, I've been here almost 11 years and I'm always learning something new. Uh, you know, and then testing, same thing. You get to work very intensely with someone in a very short period of time. Um, and then you really get, it's very intellectually challenging as well. Because there isn't, the people we see, they're it usually isn't a simple answer. If it was a simple answer, they wouldn't be coming to us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get to really challenge yourself emotionally, intellectually, to help a patient or to help the person referring the patient. And that's invaluable to me. Yeah. So it's it's a really rewarding experience. Yeah, yeah. And you get to really stay engaged. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's definitely something that we've heard from a lot of people that we've talked to that is also very appealing. What kind of like really also has drawn me to say mm -hmm. of like how you're just learning lifelong, you know, mm -hmm. and a lot of people have to do, you know, like my mom's a dentist. She has to do continued education, mm -hmm. you know, but like even just in your free time, you're reading research mm -hmm. and thinking, how can I incorporate this and talking with other mm -hmm. other people who have different lenses mm -hmm. than you do. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the biggest piece is finding the settings where it fosters that. There are a lot of people that, let's say, in the field work in a setting where they don't feel valued, they don't feel respected. Um, so finding a place where you could get that, and I feel very lucky to have found that. The mentorship I have, I mean, I've had the same mentor since I started here. So, and in a lot of places, you don't get that. So that's something that's important to me. It's not important to everyone. There's some people that once they, let's say, you know, take the licensing exam, they're like, I'm good. I want to get out there, yeah. you know. Um, for me, the mentorship is so much a part of it, too. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I do think, um, so maybe that's something that can take this time to get to know about yourself. Do I like to work on my own? Yes. How do I feel about group projects yes. in my classes? <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So you specialize in psychological assessment. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us a little bit about um, how you use TAT and mm -hmm. how does one apply these measures, mm -hmm. like the scores G, is that mm -hmm. yep. it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my approach or how I always learned about psychological assessment is we use a multi-method approach. Um, within the psychology field, the way most people assess personality is via self-report. So right. you have questionnaires, <laughs> you ask patients to fill it out. And similar to what I was saying before with a, a multidisciplinary team on an inpatient unit and everybody looking at it, a patient mm -hmm. from a different lens, it's this the same principle if you think about within psychological assessment that self-report is you know, a patient's conscious evaluation of how they're doing, yeah. or, you know, it's a way that they want to tell you how they're feeling and what they're feeling. And that's important and that's valuable. 
But as humans, we're complex, and yeah. they're... Of course I'm a nice person. Yes, <laughs> yes, and that very well might be true. Um, but there are other areas that <clears throat> are harder to assess about oneself, right? Whether we're not aware of it, um, whether we're using some defensive maneuvers to deny it, and that's where more performance-based tasks come into play. So like you were saying, like the thematic apperception test, um, or the Rorschach inkblot test. These are performance-based measures. So they're indirectly assessing aspects of personality. Now, the TAT, the thematic apperception test, it's a series of, of cards, of pictures of people in various situations. And the uh, person, the patient is asked to generate a story. And like most stories, we ask for you know, a beginning, middle, and end, what the what the um, characters are thinking and feeling. And I use <clears throat> the, uh, the social cognition and object relations scale global rating method to then rate that content. And what the scores G for short assesses is it is it looks at a patient's, it looks at eight dimensions of object relations. So um, cognitive and affective processes that underlie personality organization. And um, and then I'll, I'll rate each narrative based on those eight dimensions. And that that's an aspect of personality organization. So it helps me understand, you know, how are they thinking? How are they feeling? How are they relating to others? How do they feel about themselves? And I use that in conjunction with let's say self-report measures um, to, or other clinician rated measures to have a comprehensive view of what's going on with right. the patient. Trying to get the real picture. Yes, to get the overall picture, not just one side of it. Yeah. And I look for how findings converge. So, you know, what are the similarities between what the patient is reporting versus how they're responding. I'm also looking at differences, right? A patient that on self-reports that is not reporting any distress, I'm fine, I'm good, everything's great. And then let's say on performance-based tasks, like whether it's the TAT, the scores ratings of TAT narratives, or the Rorschach, let's say that's indicative of extreme distress, right? Mm -hmm. Versus other people where, you know, um, people are reporting extreme distress, but the TAT in Rorschach is not reflecting that versus when they're, you know, there are, when they are quite similar. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I feel like what's really unique about those kind of tests too is even if you know like how it works, like just coming up with a story, I feel like doesn't have that like base validity, you know? Um, so yeah, it is really interesting how it's like, I don't know, uh, Zenon and I were like going through Google Images and, I was, and we were like, okay, like, so we take a minute, we both, come, like our stories are completely different. We're like, that's weird. Next one. But <laughs> yeah. is it, but is it yeah. though? Is it? Like, I think even with the TAT narratives, you know, I think they're going to be common out, like, they're going to be commonalities as far as you might see similar things, but how you construct it how you organize it, how you interpret the characters, that's your psychology. Right. And the big piece of it is that there's an empirical-based measure to assess that. In the, you know, that's, 
that's a piece that could complement it. It's both as a psychologist, I could interpret it qualitatively, um, but to have an empirical-based measure to also be able to rate it, yeah. that's going to improve the, you know, the validity of the measure, yeah. to be able to then compare across people, et cetera. Um, I've heard about some like controversy about um, the cultural aspects of TAT. Mm -hmm. Have those been accommodated in recent years to... So people, so um, in the, so in some research, they've made more culturally sensitive cards when they were, I think it was in 1943, the cards were made. So they aren't yeah. really, there needs to be more work with it. I use a very, like a set number of cards. So I use like cards one, two, three, BM, four, 13, MF, 12, M, 14, um, I haven't looked at all the other cards, so I'd imagine some might be more than others, but it, it definitely is a vulnerability um, for sure. And some people have made their own to adapt that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing we find we um, uh, get into is since they were from so long ago, um, it, it, at times, I don't have empirical research to demonstrate it. It's a great question, though, to answer <laughs> empirically. It's like you wonder if, you know, people might have a harder time relating to it. Um, but that being said, you know, people generate stories and they do develop, you know, rich narratives that give us an inclination of what's going on with the person. Right. Um, so in your work in your daily life so you take these assessments you have a good idea of their personality what happens from there once you have um this kind of outline of what the person might be going through based on these less than conscious mm -hmm. and conscious reports. yeah so then what we do is you know there are four parts to um psychological assessment administration you have to administer them correctly, then you have to score them correctly, you interpret them, and then you write a report. Um, and so we write a report um, that talks about this. Uh, we try to use little jargon, but within the field there's gonna be some. Um, and it is written toward uh, to the person that referred the patient, um, and then we uh, give it to them. And then the patient can either review it with their provider or they could come to, to let's say, us to review it with them. And then we review it with them in a feedback session. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how has studying psychology and personality and yeah. things like that, how has it changed how you interact with other people in your personal life? Yeah. So I, I think... It's, it's so funny because um, it's like when you're learning about psychology and personality and treating patients, it it's like you end up learning about yourself. You end up learning how to like cope or interact with people differently or understand things. Um, so it's like, you know, you're treating yourself by proxy. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I've just learned... I've learned how to, let's say, I don't know, like navigate problematic relationships in a different in a different way. Like I'm more open to sort of talking about it, um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's a big piece of it. I'm more understanding and more compassion. I'm still human, so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, I could look at my role more in things, um, which has been helpful. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, you're in an argument or something with yeah. a friend, and you think like, "Oh, I learned about this in social study." You're like, okay, use my <laughs> use my reflective skills. Right, like that. right. How do you? And this is like kind of going along with self care, but how do you create that boundary? Are you able to leave work at work? Yeah. So I'm not great at this, but I've it's something that I've been working on for a long time. Is, um. You know, if when you're invested in your work and it's part of your identity, um, it can be hard to balance, let's say, work and then everything else that happens afterwards. So some of the things that I do that help just concretely is, you know, especially with technology, you could access things all the time. I know myself. Yeah. So one of the things that I do is I, I never set it up that I could check email at home. I can't like you know, get into anything work-related once I leave work. Um, so that's something that has helped me because otherwise I would be checking it all the time and that really wouldn't be necessarily healthy. I have a pager, so that, and I don't get paged a lot, which is great, but so that makes it hard. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but uh, other things is I'm very selective is to what I actually do at home. So. I do a lot of research, but research isn't technically part of my job. So the only, and then I have my job. Yeah. So the only time I could really do research is after work. So, you know, that's really what I do outside of work. And I really try to keep all my clinical work at work. Sometimes those boundaries blur a little bit um, if it's a particularly busy time of year but that's those are some of the systems that i put in place yeah <clears throat> so you have that self-knowledge yes 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 can't even be an option no it can't be an option and i knew it as soon as i started working here i'm like i'm not setting it up that way mm -hmm. yeah so if you could give a piece of advice or two to people who are very early in their mm -hmm. careers or you know just trying to figure it out what would you say? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, the biggest thing is be true to yourself. Don't like go into something because you think that's what you want to do or that's what you should do. Like really try to evaluate like what you want to do. And if you're unsure, get experience with it first. You, you don't, I think one of the pressures, and I, I feel like it's, it's worse these days. It's like there's so much pressure on like you have to figure it all out now. And you don't. Like part of, you know, let's say whether you're undergraduate, like you're figuring out the point that you have all these different classes is like, it's not that you should have the answer, it's to figure out what you like and don't like. Right, those prereqs are just to Right, exactly, not just to annoy you. Yeah. So, you know, I think part of it is like, everybody has their own learning curve and some people it's gonna take longer than others and that's not wrong or bad. Mm -hmm. But don't rush into something because you feel the pressure to do so. Um, don't ignore any of it either. But I, I think it's it's really just allowing yourself to space to think about what what you want. Because this is your life in the end. It's no one else's life. So, you know, really thinking about like what you like, what you don't like, what you want to learn more about. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to have it all figured out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one... 
one thing I saw is something my university posted. It was um, this interview with this Broadway producer, you know, and he said, like, when you're thinking about what you want to do, think of, like, action verbs, you know? Think, like, in, for your case, maybe it'd be like, I like to use psychological assessments mm-hmm. and apply them. Yeah. I like to work in a team. I like to talk to people, mm-hmm. you know, and finding those verbs that, like, uh, resonate more with you that you can see yourself doing every day and thinking, yeah, I like to mm-hmm. do those things because I feel like it's easy to think about it very abstract. Oh, psychologist, you know, but what does that really Right, mean? right, exactly. And I think, like, what does that look like? And that's a big thing why, you know, I... Like, even in, in psychodynamic thought, there's a lot of theory, but I've, I've always been about, I can't, like, live in theory land. I have to be like, well, what does that look like with a patient? Like, what does that sound like? How does that directly relate to technique? And, you know, the hard part is even if you think of as an undergraduate or a master's student, it's like your identity is developing. Like, you're actually at a developmental stage yeah. where you're figuring out who you want. So it makes sense why within the context of your career, you know, it's not always straightforward because you're still figuring out who yeah, you are. Who you're gonna be. Exactly. So it's like allowing yourself that 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 space. But yeah, I really like that with the action words. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's all that I've got for you. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks. And yep, that's all, folks. A huge thank you to Dr. Stein for giving us insight into what it's like to work in a hospital setting, into psychoanalysis and practice, and what it's like to be a therapist. Um, So join us next time. We'll be talking to Scott Greenspan, a doctoral candidate um, from Boston. And that's going to be super exciting. Yep. Take a look at the show notes for links to our Facebook, Twitter, website. Like it up, subscribe, rate, comment nice things, show your friends, your professors, teachers. If you know any psychologists, refer them our way so that we can get some more great voices and experiences on this podcast. Absolutely. And a huge thank you to Dr. Caleb Seifert from University of Michigan Dearborn for giving us a reference to talk to Dr. Stein. We had an amazing time talking to her. Definitely. All right. We'll see you next time on Preoccupied. Just want to get that explanation out of the way. Oh, yeah, I honestly, <laughs> yeah. you're with me in spirit, you know? Of course. So yep. I felt you were there.